Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, after a few weeks uh, at uh, the start and end of the Bible, I thought today we might jump into the middle of the Bible uh, and open up the Psalms, and specifically to open up the first Psalm, Psalm 1 today. Uh, and I would like to start by just rereading that beautiful verse 3, that this picture of, of a most blessed person. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Doesn't that one simple verse take our minds to such a beautiful place and, and, and make our hearts long, I suppose, to, to come into such a state? Uh, isn't it the shortest and sweetest little picture of well, peace, isn't it? it? It's a picture of shalom in the Bible, a wholeness, contentedness. Uh, it's abundance and yet resilience and, and fulfilment, uh, rest, and uh, it's peace. The church today, I reckon, is all up on that vision in verse 3, and, and the word capturing that vision at the end of verse 3, prosperity. And rightly so, it would seem, in Psalm 1. Uh, and yet, I wondered to myself, have we caught hold of the rest of Psalm 1 wrapped around that third verse? The blessing part, I think, can be heard everywhere you cast your ear in Christian circles. Uh, but I'm not so convinced Christians are pursuing that picture in verse 3. In the only way that God explains here, it's going to be found. Because verses 1 and 2 establish the framework, don't they, of, of how you and I would come into such a state as verse 3. And it's a basic decision point around embracing the law of God. Here is what it is to find blessing, says verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Do you see the basic contrast set out in Psalm 1 between the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers on the one hand, and the person who loves the law of God on the other hand? And it's a contrast, isn't it, between two different ways of life. The blessing... Here's the thing, the blessing is for the one who embraces the law of God, which is what sets up that beautiful verse 3. The one who seeks for God's law is the blessed one because he is the one who will come in to verse 3. He is the one like a tree uh, 
planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in in season and and with a leaf that does not wither, in all that he does. Uh, Not the sinner, no, uh, the one who brings his life under the law of God. He is the one who prospers. In fact, quite the opposite's in store for the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers, those who do not delight in the law of God, as verse 4 goes on to to sort of round this whole picture out. The, The wicked are not so i.e. they are not going to experience that beautiful shalom of verse 3. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. That's the very opposite to the one planted strong by the streams in verse 3, isn't it? Just just bits of straw that, that the wind is going to blow away. The contrast is pretty clear and pretty simple. And yet, as I say, I'm worried. I'm not so sure that that many Christians today are actually pursuing fulfilment and peace by pursuing God's law. They're pursuing peace and that idea of peace. I've got no doubt of that truth, but often I think it's through some other means and maybe any other means for some people than through meditating on God's word. And applying God's word to their lives, I think we can take the psalmist here to mean. And so there should be a great warning here in Psalm 1 for those of us who would hope for the picture in verse 3, in that the way into that picture is via verse 2. Is the law of God our delight? Do we meditate on it? day and night like this how often do we open up god's word and do we really 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 want our hearts to be realigned reshaped and and remade according to his word we thought about the importance of god's law last week and how it helps create the relationship between us and god our obedience to god demonstrates our faithfulness to God. And so it kind of makes a lot of sense, if you think about it, to now open up Psalm 1 and read about this idea of blessing flowing to us out of such obedient faith, that when our hearts are turned to God's law, we would prosper like this because we're living faithfully under our God. It makes sense. Not prosper, though, in the way the modern church tends to take that word. I think we should be careful to say, you know, we're we're blessing. That idea is taken quite simplistically, uh, very shallowly, as just sort of day-to-day material stuff falling into place. Uh, I mean, that kind of blessing actually falls pretty readily enough on sinners too uh, in this fallen world, by God's common grace to all for now. No, no, true prosperity is what verse 3 is on about. Biblical prosperity, where where we are strong and stable and grounded and content in the joyful, faithful relationship with God, no matter the circumstance of life we find ourselves in, even in what would otherwise be withering circumstances if we look more carefully at verse 3, we would be drilled in and tapped into something strong even though our circumstance would be awfully dry. And for the singular reason, there it is in verse 2, that we embrace God's law with the resultant blessings that brings of being at peace. 
The bigger checkpoint in the psalm comes, though, a little bit deeper because that difference of finding peace or not uh, by pursuing God's law or not is actually captured here in Psalm 1 with two very ugly words that the psalm uses uh, that we need to try to take hold of today as we as we continue our series exploring the counsel of God in Scripture. Uh, as much as I'm sure we'd probably rather keep the discussion about faith in, in more comfortable territory, like our relationship with God as we thought of it last week, uh, well, the ugly truth under that, more specifically, is around the point of sin and judgment of sin. Two very ugly words. We glossed over this part in verse 1, but it comes back to haunt us in verse 5. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Church today does not like these two ugly words, sin and judgment. But there they are in black and white and we need to draw them out of this beautiful little psalm today and, and try to think about them today because in actual fact the Bible won't let us escape from its teaching on sin and the rightful judgment our sin should incur. Uh, so it's worth asking the question... <laughs> Why do we try so hard to ignore those two words? My goal in this series, by the way, is to try to help us settle on what, what, what are the biggest themes of Scripture. I don't know if I'm going to achieve that. Uh, what is it, though, is the question. What is it that God wants to say in Scripture? I'm sure we've all got our own ideas of what we'd like to hear from God's Word, but, but what does He want to say? And in the back of my mind, I've been curious as to whether I could think of something like this to sort of check on it, you know, get a reasonable kind of check on our progress as to whether we're actually getting uh, this term to the counsel of God in Scripture. An idea that maybe after we spend these 10 weeks exploring 10 big paired ideas that they're going to be, like sin and judgment, the ugly words today, we, we might get to a point at the end of the term where we could basically flip open any page of Scripture. You know how you do that? Just open a random page and see one of these themes that we're going to look at in this series. And of course, having seen it there, that it would connect us into the other themes that we're going to think through in the series. I don't know if that's going to work. I, like I've, It's just a loose idea at this moment in time, but, but maybe you can file that away for later reference and uh, think about it as we build through the series. And maybe we can somehow run a check on this at the end because, after all, we, we want to get the best possible sense as to the counsel of God in Scripture in this series. But either way, whether that works or not, one thing I'm pretty sure about is this, that these two ugly words in Psalm 1 that I want us to look at today, uh, sin and judgment, I reckon they're going to be one of the biggest combo themes in the series such that even if we went home today and just randomly flipped over a hundred pages of scripture to kind of check uh, we'd probably hit those two ideas as much as any so again i ask the question why does the church increasingly seem to avoid these two ideas failing to mention uh, the very idea of sin anymore in church and, and and so quietly therefore doing away with any need 
for judgment. It's everywhere in scripture that you find these two ugly words. Even right here in in this most cherished book that Christians hold so, so dear, in the Psalms and in the Psalms from Psalm 1, sin and judgment are everywhere made perfectly clear. So it's vital, I say, that we do have them in our framework because the Bible is very heavy and very clear on these points. To live apart from God and outside his law is sin. And God will one day bring judgment on all sin. Not just do we need to sort of lock those things in, but then we have to factor in their their reality in, in our lives. Indeed, just a few more pages into these psalms, and Psalm 14 is, is pronouncing this simple reality on all human beings. Psalm 14 and verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The Bible speaks of sin and judgment at length, and it speaks of those things as personally relevant to each and every one of us, my friends. The the 14th Psalm there, as brutal as it is, is repeated almost verbatim in Psalm 53. The writers of the Psalms, as you keep reading, often confess their sins too. They too have broken God's law. David, the the chief of Psalm writers, asks in in Psalm 113, verse 3, "If, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? No one is the obvious answer if you read through the book of Psalms and, of course, read through the rest of God's word. And so, yes, we most certainly need these two things in our frame of reference. Sin and judgment are real and they are relevant to every single one of us. And we need to go one step further with them, I think, based on scriptures like our little Psalm 1 today, because the obvious next question, you know, if we can accept the reality of sin and judgment in God's word and and its relevance to each and every one of us and even ourselves, if we can accept that, then the obvious next question is, how can we know then what constitutes sin and therefore what exactly will incur God's judgment? Psalm 1 kind of has that covered in verse 2. The key as to how we can clarify between the sinful and the righteous is, is centred here on the pursuit of God's law. Uh, to delight in God's law and, and to meditate on it every day is, well, that's the path away from sin. That's the path towards God. But to neglect and ignore God's word in our lives is the way of sin. Without his law, we will be the scoffers and the sinners and the wicked in this psalm and we will not survive the judgment of sin. The church today also resists God's word on this score too, the idea of his law, verse 2. 
People relegate that idea of law to some past era as if God only desired obedience from his people at one particular stage of history and now he's got other ideas. But we might think more carefully than that given the prominence of sin and judgment through scriptures. At its broadest, I reckon, uh, the Bible pronounces sin to be everything that does not proceed from a heart of faith. That's in places like Romans 14 and Hebrews 11. Everything that does not proceed from a heart of faith. But how can we have faith if we do not know God and if we do not accept what he has told us is good? And how can we, how can we know him and trust him and, uh, uh, if we don't have what he has told us in his word? You see, God has shown us in his word what kinds of things are pleasing and acceptable in his eyes. He has shown us here the way we should live if we would honour him with our lives. And the danger of kind of closing the book on God's word, as, as, as so many today do, and, and, and you know, just try to set out and, uh, and try to live a good life worthy of God independently of what he has told us in his word, the danger with that is... How else will we define what it is to live rightly under God? What else is there outside of God's word? What else is there that would inform how we live out our lives? We would self-justify is what we would do. We'd develop our convictions around what we feel like God would want us to do without ever consulting his word on these things. That's what we would do. And inevitably through that, we would then create our own law, which would diminish our sense of sin so that it can allow us to continue to do what we really wanted to do without God. Subconsciously, it might be that all that would sort of tick through, but this is what we would drift into we would change the very definition of sin. In short form, we would try to take away our guilt by taking away God's law. But that won't stand, as scriptures like Psalm 1 make abundantly clear. It is God who defines what is right for you and I. And it is his law that exposes the sinfulness that is in our hearts. And it is he, of course, who will judge. If we want to be cleared of our guilt, well, that's all well and good, my friends. But we won't find that by discarding God's law and, and making our own law instead. In fact, that is the very definition of sin put forth here in Psalm 1. And so, in actual fact, we only make our cause worse going about things that way. And the blessing and the peace and the shalom in that beautiful verse 3 will only more and more and more elude us the further we run from God's law. The easy thing about these two ugly words today, sin and judgment, the easy thing is, is that the Bible's teaching on them is so thorough and is so perfectly clear. There is a thing called sin, so much so that it affects us all. Uh, what it is, 
is living apart from God and living outside his law. And there will be a judgment of all such sin. The hard thing about uh, these two ugly words, though, is, is also that the Bible's teaching on them is so very thorough and so perfectly clear. Because when it all boils down to uh, the end of the matter, what it means is that deep down we must know that God is going to call us to account for our sin and that he will determine what constitutes that sin, not you or I. Fear not, though. These are good truths, these two ugly and hard words. Just that they have to first cut us down before we can be rightly built up. I'm sure we'd love to find a smoother way into that beautiful picture in verse 3. I'm sorry to bring us this way, but there is no other way to come into this truth but by wrestling with our own sin and the judgment we deserve. If we want to come into this peace, we must find ourselves travelling in terms of God's word. Psalm 119, if you get that far, explains, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And yet, of course, we shouldn't pretend it's so simple to to learn that path and, and to learn how to come under God's word. It's not simple. It's not easy. Nor should we think and make the mistake that we were on that path in our natural state. We weren't. Seriously, friends, who of us, in and of ourselves, who of us, without God's intervention, would be on the right side of the contrast set out here in Psalm 1? So the big two questions that Psalm 1 throws at us, uh, point blank, are, uh, am I experiencing that shalom of verse 3? Have I come into that? And if not, the second question it asks is, well, am I embracing God's law in my life, as in verse 2? And, of course, I think we also then should run those two questions back the other way, just to make sure we didn't get a false positive on the first question, the peace question, as I'm sorry to say, but I think a lot of people might have done today. In fact, Psalms like Psalm 5 and Psalm 73 speak of all kinds of earthly ways in which the wicked are the ones who are prospering in that day-to-day sort of stuff over and against God's righteous people. So we best be very clear on this state of peace in verse 3 and run the two checks in Psalm 1 back the other way. Start first in verse 2 and ask that one first. Am I embracing God's law in my life? Because if not, then whatever peace or prosperity I might have come into is not the peace and prosperity of Psalm 1 and verse 3. We must ask these questions so that we can get to the heart of these two truths that underpin Psalm 1. We've got to take proper stock of these two biblical realities of sin and judgment. And so too as we do that, we must be very careful and wary of how we define sin and thereby get a proper grip on its judgment. Because the world at large has rejected God's word now, the church might increasingly be doing that too. But those who've done so are now deceived and deceiving themselves on these matters of sin and judgment. And they've got new definitions 
that leave nothing to convict. But it's a fatal mistake to let us sinners define sin. Someone sets us straight in verse 2. It is the law of the Lord that we must be attuned to. Psalm 19 gets it too, if you'd like it in a bit longer form. Uh, Psalm 19 and verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. It's God's law that we need to be putting our lives in tune with. Psalm 119 gives it even longer form if you you still need more, but you can read that one later uh, yourself. It's God's word is the point. It's God's word that can teach us and define for us what is sin. And therefore, on the other hand, how you and I can live right lives that are pleasing to him. I tell you, the reality of sin and judgment are written all through God's word. Trust me, if we find them so thick in this little book of comfort in the middle, it's going to be written all the way throughout, as I'm sure you've discovered before. So we need to take them on board. We cannot ignore these two words in our framework. We need to take them and we need to understand that it is God's word that defines both of those things. If we strip out or or try to hide those two things, then... The rest of the Bible makes no sense, and nor does our faith. The very Christian idea of being saved makes no sense without these two ugly words of sin and judgment. When the Bible speaks of us being saved, that's what it's talking about. It's speaking of us being saved from the judgment of our sin, which we deserve. We have broken God's law, that is sin, and it is in all of us, and it must be called to account if God is just, and he is. The Bible speaks at length of his judgment, a lake of fire and sulfur, as we reflected on in Revelation 21 a couple of weeks back, into which all sinners will eventually be thrown. But God purposed to come into this world, as we read in our creed before, and save us from that judgment of our sin. For us and our salvation from that judgment, God did this in Jesus Christ. He came and lived a perfect life under all of God's law. The only one who truly sat on the right side of Psalm 1. And he came like so for you and I. He came like so to save the rest of us who are on the wrong side of God's law 
truth be told. The judgment of our sin is placed upon him and his perfect righteousness that he lived under God's law is credited to us. The blessed exchange of the gospel, our sin placed on him and his righteousness under all of God's law covered and credited to us. All when we are united to him by faith. And only this way, actually, will sinners like us stand, as Psalm 1 puts it, when that judgment does come. Because none of us have perfectly kept the law of God in our lives. And so this and only this is how we are saved. This is the Christian gospel. We are saved by the perfect righteousness of Jesus becoming ours through faith. But he does not save us into more of the same old, same old. And more of the same old wickedness, to put a fine point on that. No, he saves us into something new. Into a great process now of being more and more conformed now to the word of God in our lives. To live our lives here on out with the new heart in us that he gives us, that that desires God's word and wants to learn how to hold to God's law in our lives. This is the transforming work of the Spirit of God in his people's lives after he saves them. Our way is changed in line with this psalm to truly seek now God's word in all of our life. And the Spirit of God will do this. The Spirit of God is sent to God's people for this. He will bring us into God's word and help us, strengthen us, correct us to pursue it. Now we can truly say with this psalmist in verse 2, our delight will be in the law of the Lord. We will meditate on God's word day in and day out. We can say truly with the psalmist in Psalm 25, for example, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Lord willing, we'll get to those other things that I just touched on, like salvation and and renewal and so on as we go through the series. But today, look, there's no point in going on to those things unless we first see how vital these two truths are of sin and judgment written all the way through God's word. Without them, well, the rest of the Bible would have been a great deal thinner, you'd have to say. And yet, the rest of what would be left in there would make no sense. We must acknowledge these truths. We must face these truths. Only through confronting this stuff, it would seem, will we find our way into the shalom of verse 3. We must concede our sin if we would be saved. And to concede it, We must define sin by God's word. For we do not want to come into judgment. We want to come into the peace and prosperity of verse 3. Let me pray. 
Heavenly Father, we always thank you for your word. And so we thank you today uh, for a beautiful little psalm, but one that actually throws up some difficult words. Thank you, though, for showing us, not just here, but all through your scriptures, that you are good. It's showing us uh, what is good for us all through your word. But from your word, we also know that we do sit here as sinners before a holy God. We do sit here in ways that are on the wrong side of Psalm 1, for we have not kept your word. And yet because of that gospel that we celebrate each week, because of what you did for us in your son, because of that creed we thought of before, that for us in our salvation you came and did what you did, we learn in your word that we may sit here as righteous in your eyes that you see us now in a whole different way if we are in Christ. You see us now as though we have his perfect righteousness under all of your law. We thank you and praise you for this blessed exchange of the gospel. But we also now pray, please, Father, draw us truly and deeply into your word. Have us embrace your word in all of our lives and have us be walking and trusting with your spirit as he does his work. For your glory and for our rich blessing, we ask you to do this in us. In Jesus' name, amen.